0: It's Monday, June 24th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman and this is episode 212 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today that musician is drummer Joe Tamino. Let's have a listen. You might recognize the voice, that's King Buzzo. This is the first track on the new Dub Trio record, Joe's longtime running band, and it features the one and only King Buzzo. Today we're talking to Joe. Today on the show, drummer Joe Tamino. Before we get into it, I'm going to tell you right now, I woke up this morning with my throat my nose, my ears. Jesus fucking Christ, do you hear the chihuahuas? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, my, my, my throat is killing me right now, so I'm going to keep this kind of brief. Today on the show, Joe Tamino. What do you guys know about Joe? I've known Joe for years. He's originally from Cleveland, Ohio. He was uh, here in, in New York and Brooklyn for about 20 years, during which time he started the band along with Dave Holmes and Stu Brooks called Dub Trio. I fucking love Dub Trio. All the music on today's show is from different Dub Trio records. Dub Trio, as, as Joe and I discussed today, is a real synthesis of you know aggressive rock music, reggae, and, and really, and what's you know largely satisfying about it to me, uh, dub studio techniques and logic, you know, super hooked up, enhanced mixes that really become like a central part of the musical narrative. Certainly, it's something that in my own music uh, I, I strive for, and I think that's where uh, Joe and I have a lot of common ground. But there's also uh, something that we, we, we talk about today that was was worthwhile to me, which is, and I, I've I've talked about this period of time like a pretty good bit on this show, the period of time when I first moved to New York City, and I was first kind of getting a thing together, first meeting other musicians, first, you know, improvising with some frequency. Joe was around at that time working with a lot of the same people whether it was you know um Nate Woolley or or or, or Jessica Pavone or um you know James Ilgenfritz you know I th- I've I've mentioned this place before but there used to be this juice bar in Tribeca called Elixir that belonged uh to James Ilgenfritz's sister and she let it she let James do a series though excuse me, do a series there. And that was, you know, one of the first places I started playing. It was a tiny room that held literally about six people. Uh, And and I remember seeing Joe's name a lot on on the calendar around that time. And, uh, you know, Joe's life got busy musically. Dub Trio, in a lot of ways, became the house band for Studio G, which is the studio that belongs to Joel Hamilton and Tony Momoni. In Brooklyn, two guys who I really need to have on the show, uh, and as a group, you know they've put, like I said they've put out five records of their own. Uh, but they were the backup band for Mike Patton's Peeping Tom for several years. They've been the backup band for Matis Individually and as session musicians, they've worked with people like Kanye West and Lady Gaga. Uh, so high, you know, pretty high profile shit. Their newest record, which is called The Shape of Dub to Come, is. Fucking spectacular, as you heard at the top of the show, King Buzzo from the Melvins, um, guests on the first track. They've got a pretty good history of that, of having different singers. You know, pop, you know Patton. I think Mike Patton's done uh, two different, uh, two or three different songs with them. Uh, but the record is just spectacular. It's really, really well executed, dirty, aggressive music, and they're about to go on tour, uh, opening for Incubus. So those should be pretty big shows. Um, check out Dub Trio if you haven't before. Go to DubTrio.com. Go to com. Joe's very deep outside of music. Uh, he is a wine guy, a food guy, a yoga guy, like all very deeply. And, you know, not the yoga so much, but certainly the wine, the food, and the dub music. Uh, there's a There's a nice bond that Joe and I have. And, you know, I'm happy for him. He moved to Cleveland to, to, do, you know, to raise his family and be closer to family. Uh, but I, I do miss having him around. you know. I, I wouldn't mind seeing more of Joe Tamino. Go to joetomino.com. Check out the new record, The Shape of Dub to Come. It's fucking awesome. Uh, like I said, my throat is on fire. So here is my conversation with Joe Tomino.
1: I'm probably going to cut that out
0: because I don't want motherfuckers biting my shit. Okay, I won't <laughs> <laughs> But, like, I, I don't know, man. Like, we, we both use pedals. Yes. I pretty much, and this is going to sound incredibly pretentious, only want to use pedals that are built by people that you order from directly. Pedals and gear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I... I... Well, you you could probably speak to this. Like, that... that early 2000s thing of going to Guitar Center. Yes. Buying shit there that you could always swap out if yes. you're on a tour. Yes. Got it. That's a necessity. Yep. Especially of the road. True. But I don't have any more time for Line 6, for Boss. I dig. For any of that shit.
1: I, um, I, I, I resisted the Line 6 my entire life. So <laughs> I was, I've was i been tempted many times. You've never gone down? i never gone. Actually, I take that back. I did buy the Verbzilla, which I like. I had that. say the spring in the Verbzilla? Yeah. Legit. For like yeah. digital, I've tried, you know, the Spring King and a couple other ones like non uh, analog spring, real spring. I mean, we used to use like a cube amp on stage just for the spring. The ZT thing? Yeah. Yeah. But the Verbzilla for a small, tiny pedal, the way it sounds with two different, you know, there's spring one, spring two. For for what I use it for, for like most mostly dub stuff, sounds great. It's great, yeah.
0: So that's that's my line. Six. But the thing with the Verbzilla, yeah. I'm, I'm down to talk about gear is like the, I've my so I had one, and the thing I enjoyed about it was that there was that octave reverb. Yes, And I thought it kind of reminded me of that shimmer thing that you put me on too. Oh yeah, yeah, I dig it. Yeah, but um, the I their selling point, if I remember correctly, was that you could like swap out some sort of uh like memory card. So this is something I've with never known. With alternate presets. Never known this. And I was always like, fuck that. I'm not swapping out like memory cards in the middle of a gig. I've never heard this. This is yeah. incredible. I, I'm probably describing it wrong, but right. there's some modular aspect of
1: it. Okay, dig it. Yeah. Yeah. I just learned something.
0: So you still use that thing? Mm hmm. I've had it for
1: fucking 15 years. Still holding up. <laughs> the same what?
0: Yes. And you would, before that, you were dropping the amp like old school right, yep, dub style.
1: Crouching it with, hitting it with my hand, like bruising my hand every night or just shaking it that's more Uh, authentic yeah it's legit (laughs) i mean i used to have a spring king which Uh has a spring in it and i would put that on the floor by the drums and kick it i wasn't actually running anything into it i would just use it for running into the mixer and i would kick it and sweep the eq on it as i was in performance in performance yeah but then i i I think i went through two of them and they just kind of break after you keep kicking them
0: yeah and they're cheap.
1: They're like hundred bucks.
0: Well, see, that's the cool thing about the guitar center shit. Yes, you don't shed a tear. Yes, if your green line six shits the bed, which it will. Yes,
1: I got you. I mean, that's why. I, that's why I didn't invest because everyone has it and it's gonna break. So I just, although I thought that about the Verbzilla too, and it never broke. Like the the knobs are kind of chintzy and, but it's holding up. It's a long time.
0: How many touring bands, especially in the early two thousands? Do you think fully look just saw Guitar Center as like a rental company?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to say guilty, but possibly guilty. Many, many. I mean, you know, I don't know. I I didn't do Guitar Center a lot, but when it needed to go down, we would go there and do that whole thing. And uh-huh. sometimes we would keep the shit without returning. Like if like my pads broke, uh-huh. I would you know i buy, buy the pads and then return them at the end of the tour.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, guitar center's like going bankrupt now. <laughs> yeah, are they. Yeah,
1: I mean, I try to like you know go mom and pop or yeah buy uh, you know use from friends or whatever. But I don't. I try to amass too much gear because it's a financial rabbit hole. I try to just yeah you know I have enough. I could always use more as we all could, but I have enough to just keep exploring. What i have now
0: what's well, some point you gotta like look at what you have and and just be realistic about like like the amount of stuff just sitting in this tiny little room yeah arguably several lifetimes yes of creativity could be channeled through these things yes there's pl- you know there's really no need for me to get another box that just makes weird noises there's a lot of time right
1: there i see Yes, yeah. uh, yes
0: you know so at some point you just gotta like especially if you're you know you play an acoustic instrument you just, mm-hmm. i feel like i always need to remind myself that like it's let's, let's back things up like right. I I could still use a lot of work on the horn.
1: I could end up I think I could uh for me it's time to buy more like snare drums than it is like guitar I think I have so many like distortion and fuzz pedals that I think I need to start buying more snare drums. <laughs> We're going, uh, pa- guitar I don't know.
0: So did the when did you start putting pedals together? Because I feel like Well okay, let's go back. You're from Cleveland. Originally from Cleveland, yep, born and raised in
1: in the suburbs of Euclid, Ohio. Okay. I have friends from Shaker, but I live near Shaker now, but I grew up in Euclid. Um, Yeah, Euclid. Yeah. It's a blue collar, you know, cool city. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, I was there up until 98.
0: Did you go to music school?
1: I went to music school. Where? Yeah, I went to Cleveland State for a year. I went to it was in the music department there, and then I left. Well, then I went on tour for a year, and then I left to go to NEC, the conservatory in New England. I didn't know you went there. I was there for about six months. <laughs> I hated it. I made some good friends, but musically, I didn't really jive with anybody. And, on, uh, on faculty? No, like like the 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 kids, the youth, my peers. Yeah, um, I mean, I liked you know studying with Bob Moses and Ram Blake, and even though I was aware of Maneri, I wasn't in that camp like the third stream really too much, a little bit, but not really taking that many classes. Um, but I feel like that when I was there, I feel like shit opened up right when I left, like the next year. But when I was there, it, I think everyone was kind of like really into, like, the whole uh, Tane, uh-huh. you know, and Brantford thing. That was big then, you know, and, like, Antonio Sanchez, the uh-huh. drummer, was there, and Danilo was there, and it was that sort yeah. of aesthetic, which is great. I just, that wasn't where I was coming from when I left Cleveland. And then the classical guys who I it was uh, friends with more, I feel like, than the jazzers, although I had some great, you know, jazz friends uh, that I've made and still have, but um, they were... They were just kind of getting into electronic music, but not yet. I remember like hipping a lot of the, some of those guys, not a lot, I'd say a couple of them, to like early electronic music, mm-hmm. not music concrete, but like sort of modern, late 90s electronic music. What, like, that, like, like uh, Apex Twin or something? Yeah, that stuff, yeah. and you know, some more abstract stuff, but like that stuff, like Apex and, and the like, and, uh, and now they're doing all kinds of like, you know, not to say that I shape whatever they're doing, I'm just saying... It wasn't that open there yet, and well, there what was your
0: original intention in going was there an intention to go to I music? feel like
1: it was like to study composition and jazz percussion, you know, just to like become a better jazz drummer and study composition and meet people network, although I wasn't too concerned about that, but I guess I was wrong when i when I was there, and I just I felt like I found what the curriculum really entailed and like I wasn't too into playing big band, modern big band stuff, and and I was just like, you know, this is not. My dad got sick, which is really why I left. And I was like, you know what? I, I it made me question a lot of stuff, and I was like, I this is not how I want to spend my time, and I just never went back. I didn't. I didn't. Finish. So you went back to Ohio I went to be closer to Ohio your dad. To coach my dad while he was passing away, and then I made the choice not to go back to New England and just went on tour and then moved to New York six months later, basically. Everyone, I feel like, 90% of people that were there that I knew were wanting to or eventually going to be in New York anyway, so I was like, fuck it, why not just just go to New York? My wife was already here, actually, too. But you, were you guys married at the time? No, but, you know, yeah. she, we were together. She was already going. She was at SVA. And you sort of knew that you were going to end up here anyway. Yeah, I mean, so it was like, I went on tour for six months, and it's like, now I'm just going to leave because I have no home that's going to go to New York. Yeah, and get a get a place with her, I guess, and we did that. Yeah, yeah. so you didn't finish school. No, nope. that's Drop a good out. thing. Yeah, it's fine. Do you I feel don't have like
0: any debt? Like, I'm not that's what I'm stressing. saying. Do you? Uh, I mean, has there been? Was there ever a period of time where you felt like guilty or anything about that?
1: No, no, because for me, the the only way I really want to finish school was if I felt like if it was going to be more like collegiate, sort of like take taking like an educational approach. Right. Like if I wanted to be a teacher in right. a college, which maybe someday I do, but I don't now. I think that's I would have continued and finished but I didn't want to do that at the time. I still don't really now. I still I mean I teach but I don't teach at a, you know, college or a school. Right. So uh yeah, I don't feel like I like missed. The... Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I'm not
0: lacking anything.
1: I feel like uh by not finishing
0: college. I mean, but, certainly I would say and maybe, you know, I'm like wildly off base here, but just like looking at what you've been up to for the last several years like you don't build those skills Like, you build them on the bandstand. Yes, exactly. You build them in the streets. You don't build them in the classroom. You're right. That's,
1: yep. That's been my uh, trajectory, building it in the streets. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you came to New York in 98? Uh, I came to New York, no, I came to New York in 2000. Okay. I I went to NEC in 98, and then I went back to Cleveland in 99 and toured, and then I... After I kind of got off the road, there was a little stretch there where I was off. I was like, let's just... Yeah, that's why I moved to New York. Like, basically May of 2000.
0: Okay. Yeah. And did you have a particular aspect of New York music that you were hoping to dive into?
1: Well, I was sort of into that, you know, that sort of downtown scene. Like, Yeah. we I had a band in, in Cleveland called Birth, P-I-R-T-H, and we had built a mass, sort of the scene in Cleveland of creative improvised music that there was... There was no scene. I mean, aside from the the old school, like the, you know, the Isler and that scene, there wasn't really anybody doing that at that point. And we had built the scene playing that music um, at, you know, um, venues that are now pretty big in Cleveland that, ju- that had just opened up like in the late 90s, um, playing that kind of music for... Uh, fans and building up like so like we would bring cats from chicago or new yorkers mm-hmm. who were probably used to playing for maybe 20 or 30 people in the u.s mm-hmm. and when they'd come to cleveland we'd have a room of a hundred packed we built it was kind of an anomaly like, yeah it was crazy like it, it was sax bass drums electric bass we all kind of played electronics this is like late 90s and we were playing we were improvised by, like, if I had to just generalize, it was like we were maybe been improvised by, like, Square Pusher mm-hmm. and, you know, Blood Count, Tim Burn. Right. And we were fusing these things before, it was, like, the live drum and bass thing was happening. or right. And so it was accessible to people who were into not so avant-garde music, but it was also the compositions were heady enough that, you know, improvisers or people who liked jazz in sure. Cleveland could appreciate They could find something in it. Yeah, it, it wasn't like, um you know, they, they weren't picking it apart like, oh, this is groove based music, because it was grooves, but at the time, they were, you'd be completely open and, you know, n- noise or, you know, playing free improv. So there's something for everybody. So it was kind of crazy that we had a, a scene for that type of music where it was, all ages from like teenagers to like you know 67 year olds you know Harvey Picar was a big you got to know Harvey he was way behind the bat he wrote reviews for yeah you know, for birth like downbeat I think and you know he's the one who hooked us up with Maneri. he Harvey was a he was a big part of like why birth kind of succeeded I feel like um we did the work, too, but... Of course. Harvey was behind us. He's a champion. Yeah, and he, you know, he was really good friends with Josh, the horn player, and...
0: What was it, Josh?
1: Josh Smith. Uh-huh. And uh, we... Um, he would come to shows.
0: He never really came out, but he came to some shows. Man, if I could... Anyway, I, I I regret that I never got to meet Harvey Picar. Yeah, he's a cow. I, I went to his house
1: one time. That was a trip. Was it messy? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he was a trip. Yeah. Yeah, he was... Um, You know, indebted to Harvey, and I respect him, and I, kind of a I didn't really know him that much. I mean, I knew about the comics, but I didn't really... I didn't, you know, I wasn't really studied up on his history outside of, like, the jazz stuff and just kind of being aware of his presence, but I later went and dug a little deeper, but I'm grateful for everything that he did for that band. So, anyway, go to take it back. When I moved to New York, I had met all these cats from bringing all these cats to Cleveland. Like, I knew, you know... Uh, Chris Speed and like all those guys, Mm -hmm. Jim and Kung and Saft and, you know, Brad Shepik and Tim and Michael and all these guys just through birth. So when I moved here, I kind of got gigs right away, kind of. But my intention wasn't just to try to break through the New York scene. Mm -hmm. It was just to come here and be with my wife and play. And I was still touring with birth and... You know, so it wasn't like I'd... Yeah,
0: I mean, I think, like, if you're, you know... I, I moved here in 2002. Yep. And... Where are you from again, Atlanta? No, I grew up upstate, lived in Atlanta for a while. I moved here. I kind of bounced around the uh, south a little bit. Athens, Nashville. Yep. But what I was going to say uh, and is that I moved here with, like, very specific ideas of what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then just immediately realized that if you're an improviser in New York, the world's kind of your oyster. Yep. There's a million people to play with, all kind of coming from different places. True. Doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money. Exactly. Doesn't mean the the uh, the concerts are going to be these grand events. But you sort of figure out who you are. I I figured out who I was through that lens.
1: Yeah, I dig it. Yeah, I mean, creatively, like, yeah, there's a lot of options here for that, and I I was lucky enough to already have a little bit of a, you know, I had some some sort of rolodex of people I could call people
0: that you already knew like like yeah. jamie and chris or
1: yeah i mean when i first moved out i think one of the i think i did a bunch of like sessions but i one of the first gigs that i got was uh kung vu i was in the trio with stomu and kung oh wow and because um, hollenbeck i think was busy doing his own thing and so i was with kung for about a year and a half and toured on a record or two and so And then, you know, I've done some sessions with some some of those other guys. I was playing a little bit with Chris Dahlgren and Mm -hmm. um,
0: Tronzo, and I knew Tim LaFave,
1: so we played a little bit. um,
0: But so, like, speaking of, like, Tim LaFave and and, and Jamie uh, and Kong, like, there was, like, there was,
1: they had a group. Prohibited Beats, I think. Oh, I remember that name. I know I didn't. I know, maybe I saw them. I never played with them, but but there was
0: a live drum and bass thing happening. That was right when that was taken off. Yeah, yeah.
1: 2000, 2001
0: Yeah, Guy Lacato would have
1: been. Guy was around. Yeah, although we we weren't that tight at that point, but he's a good friend now. But um, you know dan Zigger, mm-hmm. Zach. We, I was a fan of you know the Tim, uh Lefebvre, Zach Crantz. Yeah, Big fan of that trio. Yeah. And so I knew Wayne because um, would, we would come up with Birth to go see him or we'd go see him when we'd play. I actually got to play that gig once with Like Wayne, 55 Bar or something? Uh, yes, 55 Bar. So, you know, knowing Zach and um, and Tim, just, just, you know, networking and through just basically through that band Birth, like putting on shows, people coming through Cleveland and they, we'd have a fan base and just... Yeah, turning them on and coming up here and playing like the old knit, like playing the alternate,
0: the like the little bar. Yep.
1: Yeah. The alternate and uh, you know the tap bar and we do tap shows bar. in the basement. The alternate was though, the, the
0: penalty box upstairs. Yes, exactly. The pen, that's what Zorn used to call it, the penalty box. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dig it. <laughs> shows were like five bucks, and it was yep. that small room. That's it. I, I actually of that of the Knitting Factory on Leonard Street, I think that was my favorite space in the room in the building. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dub Trio played a lot of shows at the Tap Room. Like that's kind of where we kind of came up, mm-hmm. building a fan base. One of the rooms, but uh a lot of ba- did you ever get a residency there? Yeah, we had kind of like a maybe I don't know what it was, like a Tuesday thing, or
0: that's I mean, you know, say I I know that you know Michael Dorf mm-hmm. and his whole scene. You mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of opinions, not of many of which are so flattering. Dig that. Being said. You know, because he's always bet. The beautiful thing about a place like the Knitting Factory and Tonic, to a lesser extent, is that there was this sort of like confluence of creative music and commerce. Yes. So they would put on shows. You know, front of house sound exactly bar trying to push drinks, and they weren't necessarily in complete conflict with each other. Right. It would allow for things like residencies. Yep. Which, I think, right now we're we're a little short on those things. Yeah. You know, we've got over-the-top venues and we've got shitholes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the Cleveland scene, so I don't really... know Yeah. Really, I'm kind of out of touch with New York these days, but... Yeah, I mean, it, there was a production there that was, like, working. Yeah. I mean, I'll give them that, you know? I mean, I played a lot of shows there with a bunch of different bands, and they were all pretty different. And always got paid fairly. Sure. That was nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Correspondingly, or, uh-huh. you know. Business was always... Decent. i knew I never put out a record on any factory I was never involved in that right. aspect of it but uh. did you
0: i remember i remember seeing your name like around that like when i when I close my eyes and I think about the first period of time I was in New York uh-huh. i i see the elixir juice bar Oh, okay, I yeah, see yeah, you know I see the tank on forty second yeah. street yeah, yeah, right. like yep. I could start uh-huh. like. You know, very quickly pulling names, and I remember you—you okay. you, you did something with Nate Woolley at some point. Well,
1: yeah, we had a band with—I just saw Nate actually a couple of weeks ago. We played a show with him in Vandermart. They were playing duo, but it was good to see Nate. Yeah, I, I love him, and he's a great player. Um, yeah, we had a band with James Ilgenfritz, Jonathan Moritz, Nate, and myself—quartet.
0: Those would be the, the 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 very first names I would say from that time period. Yeah, so that, that, that we, hit me.
1: We toured. Uh, we did a couple of small little runs, and we played some New York shows. It was mainly James's music. I feel like there may have been some of our other compositions, but and we did some improv stuff. But um, that group was put together by James, I believe, the Elgin mm-hmm. But yeah, we we played a little bit, um, and then I played a couple other gigs with Nate over the years, but not too many. But um, yeah, I always loved playing with Nate. Yeah, that was. Around that time, like early 2000s, 2002, yeah. one. um, I was still sort of in town. Were you like, doing
0: session work at that time?
1: I was doing a bit of session work. The session work kind of came came in around like 2002, two, three. That's when that started, like a little bit later. Like after a couple of years of like getting some roots here and meeting people like like producers more than like... Like, like Joel? Like, like Joel, but not really Joel. Joel Hamilton. Joel be, kinda, yeah. yeah, Joel Hamilton, Studio G. He kind of came in... Around the first Dub Trio album. This is more, more or less people who we had met through friends that, you know, I was in a band called Actual Proof, mm-hmm. which sort of has the members of Dub Trio in it. This is a quintet, um, five piece band. And those guys are from Berkeley. So they knew some people from Berkeley who were engineers or musicians or producers that I kind of got lumped in because I knew those cats. And then I would just get hired by. Songwriters or producers, or these guys who had moved from Berkeley who had studios, or who were at Berkeley, you mean College of Music or California? Yeah. No, Berkeley College of Music. Okay, yeah. So, I you know, I kind of just got looped in with their friends, and you know, maybe they were they had assistant engineers who worked with so and so engineer or producer, and they would say, Oh, that guy who's playing drums with you, Joe, or whatever. So, I would go in and do some of these sessions. So, that's how I sort of got into some of that studio work in the early 2000s, just word of mouth knowing producers and songwriters engineers Mm -hmm. mainly yeah
0: i mean i will say this like i i I feel like a lot of being successful in that world is just staying busy in that world yes it's a lot of there's a lot of things but certainly being someone that people want to be around oh yeah seems like a big part of it
1: i think that's it goes you know any sort of like uh music where you're like you know t- on tour or you yeah. know in the studio it's it's all about that you know relationship and being someone you know d- d- i don't want to say pleasant but just professional but a good attitude yeah i mean because i mean you're not you might not you might be able to, you might be great but you might not get the call back because there's a gazillion great players here right who could probably do the job especially if it's studio stuff if you're talking like Improv stuff or something very niche to whatever you might be able to bring to the table, you might not get that call back if you're a dick. Yeah, I mean, and I wasn't trying to like please be. I was just being myself, and yeah, I'm not like the greatest. I wasn't the greatest studio drummer. I'm still not. I mean, I'm just. I was just someone who could, you know, had a who had you know a facility and some skills and could take orders well and had no real ego and was willing to just. I was young. I was willing to try stuff and. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. I seem to, you know, have somewhat success at that scene for a while. I mean, the other thing is, if you're not in town, you don't get the calls either. Right. So, eventually, it's like, oh, dude, sorry, I'm out. Sorry, I'm on tour. Sorry, I'm on tour. Yeah, and then at some point, it's Joe, yeah. the guy that's always out of town. Yeah, then you don't get the calls. Right.
0: <laughs> it's funny. I've known people in New York, like, you know, really solid musicians, who quietly move away. They don't want people to know that they've moved oh, somewhere. Because yeah, okay, they're scared of the, the call, the phone stopping ring.
1: <laughs> oh, dig that. Okay. Right, 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 right. I mean <laughs> I had, like, some anxiety about moving away, but... Yeah. It was, you know, for me, it was time. Fifteen years or whatever. Man,
0: I mean, just on a side note, like, right now, everyone's moving away. This is true. It's like a lot of my...
1: All the people I know are moving away. Very few people I know here are still... I mean, all I say, yeah, a lot of people are moving away or have moved
0: away. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's natural. Maybe, like, you hit a certain point in your life, like, age, and you start seeing people kind of peel off. Yeah, I guess so. But, like... Right now, like, the main numbers, I look at in my phone, to like, I'm like, oh, they're... Like, if this was, you know, 20 years ago, their area code would have changed. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't know. For me, you know, it was just time. Yeah. I mean... Well, so, I remember an- another way I sort of knew you peripherally uh-huh. was I used to work with my good friend, John Petro, uh-huh. who, he had this band, The Cloud Room, mm-hmm. and they were doing sessions at Studio G. Yep and yep. so I knew Tony Momoni
1: Tony's the man I just talked to him this morning Tony Momoni of Paraubo love, love Tony the our great. kids were best
0: buds growing up yeah Yep. Now I, I met Tony <laughs> this is another weird way it kind of ties yeah. back to you but I remember uh, hanging out at Botanica one night uh-huh. when Tony was DJing Botanica which for you nerds out there 47 East Houston Street Tony DJing love it Tony DJing 47 East Houston Street the original location of the knitting factory now a bar now to triple down on the nerd doing right upstairs is Estella Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyway Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was talking with Tony and Petro and I said something about like yeah man you know some people say that like Chipotle, Subway, like there's like variation in like that. You can there's like b- ones that are better than others, and like with the straightest face, he goes the the Subway right yeah. over here on House and Street is the best Subway in New York. The Italian BMT that they make there is better oh, than shoot. anyone you'll get anywhere else. It's totally, Tony.
1: Oh, he's great. I mean, I love Tony. I I t- I spoke with him this morning. I, we were going to go out for coffee. I mean, we used to live around the corner from each other. Yeah. And we were from different generations, so I didn't really know him when I was in Cleveland. He had moved away in like 84 or whatever, but
0: uh That's right. He's from Cleveland originally. Right. Yeah, yeah, Parabu, yeah, Parabu, right? Right? yeah.
1: So we we just became like really good buds after like, you know, Del Prio got into that whole Studio G scene with Joel, but Tony is just a, a homie for life. Yeah.
0: I love Tony Mamoni. Yeah. Bass player extraordinaire, co-owner of Studio G, awesome Greenpoint, Brooklyn.
1: He, that cat is an inspiration. Yeah, biking his kid to work over the bridge, going swimming every day, playing the shit the out studio, of the bass, playing the psh, mercy. Yeah, respect, respect. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, all right, all right so the Dub Trio, which was, is you. Yep. Dave, Dave Holmes, Stu Brooks. Stu Brooks, when so you guys first started playing like playing together in in this other group
1: Playing together in this other group called Actual Proof. Yeah, which is um, a band that they had in Boston um, mm-hmm. for at Ber- or at Berkeley and they moved down without a drummer and They needed a drummer and I think there was just we had some mutual friends again through that probably were through birth that I met through birth that um they recommended me to like oh you should check out this guy Joe. He's he's living here now. So I I did an audition and whatever and I I think I was the only one who made it I've done the audition but I got the gig and I've been playing with those cats since two thousand. I mean it wasn't Dub Trio at the beginning, it was a it was a quintet with a singer and um keyboard player. But Dub Trio sort of you know, Genesis was there at the beginning of that band like we kinda like there was a bond between the trio.
0: Like yeah, we really hung out tough. So, um, I mean, I don't want to gloss over things. I, I will say that my interpretation of dub trio. Yeah, I've always seen it as sort of like existing within a few different traditions, like real traditions. Yeah. Because dub trio, in addition to like you guys' records, you guys have been the house, like the backup band for a lot of groups, like yeah. a unit that could be like Mike Patton's Peeping Tom. Yeah. Montez Yahoo. Yeah. Um. Did you guys go out with the Fugees together?
1: Um. No. Stu was in rehearsals though. Okay. No. That, that was that we didn't go out together. But we've done a, a number of like people's records showcases. That's
0: like some classic shit,
1: though. Yeah, it's cool. Being like a wrecking it's crew, a crew kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, I think we could have been exploited more when we were younger. Like. Yeah. But, uh, but we were doing our own thing. You know, we were hustling, trying to make our own music. Um.
0: Well. So. There, okay. I, I. And then. Th- wh- from the first time I heard Dub Trio, yeah. it made immediate sense to me as an extension of Bad Brains.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, none of us were listening to Bad Brains. Or that's insane to me. Or had ever really listened to Bad Brains.
0: But, I mean, Bad huh. Brains literally is, they had reggae, yep. hardcore, and metal with like incredibly creative arrangements and, and riffs.
1: It's, it's kind of uncanny. I, I mean, I had heard the, the Bad Brains when I was a kid. I'm not even sure that Dave or Stewart ever really listened to them, but our first album was on Roar. Right. We put out the first Bad Brains. Then I started listening to Bad Brains. And they're the greatest like band. Ever. Lucas, you know, hooked me up with their catalogue, whatever they had, you know, and and, you know, love bad brains. We played a number of shows with them, like Closing down CBs with them, played 9.30 with them. We played 9.30 on election night, the night Obama was elected. That must have been insane. I just saw a recent video of that. It was all distorted, but it was just... 9.30 Club great, in D.C. Yep, 9.30 in D.C. That was... And we played, you know, so wild west with them. But yeah, so very similar band. I mean, well, obviously, we don't have vocals.
0: No, but I, I actually... What, let me... Let me I, I hear it as an extension, but also a synthesis because yep. with Bad Brains, the reggae and the hardcore were always separate things. Yep. Like song to song, they were separate. And mm-hmm. to me, what Dub Trio does is infuse those things.
1: Yeah, they're together. They're, they're definitely in one. I mean, it, to, to, for us, it's not about, I think, um, if I just go into it a little bit, I guess, hence the name Dub Trio, I think we, we're not completely keeping it synonymous with uh, reggae. Right, you know, it's we we look at the word dub more of like um, like a compositional sort of tool, a way to approach you know uh, the songs uh, compositionally, mm-hmm. um, like doing versions of tracks, you know, in the in the traditional dub sense. It doesn't have to be synonymous with reggae, you know. It's so, a mixed concept. It's a mixed concept exactly. It's taking the studio, the original concept of what they were doing in the studio, and applying it to kind of like whatever genre like we're writing in uh or whatever feel the tune has you know but and like every performance that we do live is a different version a different dub it's always gonna be different there's song structures but you know inherent in that there's a the freedom to uh you know arrange the track differently add, add the effects or like mm-hmm. you know yada yada yada. keep set open sections and have cues it's as if we're playing the the you know Playing, uh, you know, like when we do the studio tracks, we approach them sort of like, um, like how uh, they would back in the day. Like we play through and have all the content there, and then we shape the competition post. You know, in the box, outside the box, playing the mixing board. You know, drawing an automation in the computer. We 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 did some with tape back in the day.
0: Um, I'll so, say that yeah. if it, to me, the fact that. King uh, <clears throat> King Tubby, yeah, scientist, yeah, scratch Perry, like the fact that those guys aren't spoken of in the same way that like Stockhausen is spoken of yes. is one of the great testaments to racism, oh, I dig, you know the yes. fact I mean what those guys are every bit as heavy and just groundbreaking as any electronic composer you've ever heard.
1: Without a doubt, my friend. There wouldn't be any of that stuff. Like, in, the, in theory, like, the you know, the dub, the version is the genesis. It's the beginning of what a remix is. It's like, let alone what they were doing with the, what they had instrument-wise, like, you know, um, making their own stuff and building their own stuff and having nothing and what they did with nothing. It goes back to, like, use what you have, you know? It's, it's like a- what they did with that stuff. Changed everything. Yeah. Period.
0: Yeah. And then, so then I look at these like like pedals and shit I have sitting around me, and I feel like a jerk. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm not operating. I'm a speck. Of, I'm a cockroach next to those guys. I mean. You know. Respect to those cats
1: for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When so I mean dub music is really like. It's a deep deep, deep tradition, deep undertaking. It is like any other tradition, which is you don't just pick up, you know, start fucking around on the fader. Nope. Like, you've got to be in it.
1: I mean, it's funny. Like, the first time I became aware of dub, I was playing in a reggae band in Cleveland, and they were like, oh, yeah, and then we'll do some dub sometimes, and I had no idea. I wasn't... I I mean, I maybe knew Bob Marley. Right. And maybe Shaba Ranks or something. (laughs) And so i was i couldn't get it they were like you know they were like oh you'll just hear it you'll get it and so i just remember going to the guitar player's house who had you know a plethora of dub albums like actual vinyls and just going over there and smoking tons of weed <laughs> and he would just put on these you know sides of like classic dub records and eventually i got it like i was because you know i wasn't too much into production at that point so then I was like, okay, this. and then I became completely infatuated, and it's been a huge part of my life ever since. What,
0: what do you? What, what, where, where? What do you recall being the thing where all of a sudden you heard it?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I was probably under the influence of so much ganja at that point. <laughs> I, it was not, <laughs> um, God. Well, I really, I just remember, maybe like listening to some Prince Far Eye or some Oswald uh-huh. and then hearing sort of what they were. I guess what became apparent was me to me was, you know, listening to songs and then what they did to the manipulation with the vocal. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh fuck, where's the vocal at? And then you'd hear it kind of like come in and out, and then I realized that they were like playing with the mix, and then it was like a light bulb went off. Yeah, now I get it. Now I can. I didn't have any effects at the time, but I I had the freedom on the bandstand to stop playing, if I wanted to, you know, just to like, create a version, create a dub, you know, like it's the it was best. like a light bulb moment went up, and then you know, that kind of like informed other decisions in in my life. Uh,
0: you well, know. you I mean, you hear like with any music, you know, there's tropes, so yeah, you know drummers you know when 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 there's a a, a new bar they'll hit a crash symbol on the on the one you yeah. know that indicates you know punctuation yes. well in dub maybe they'll drop a spring reverb and it's that same thing it's like exactly yeah Exactly. and once you start hearing that shit or you know the fade you know you'll hear the delay kind of you know trail out and then you know boom on the next measure it's gone like these are right. totally like just the, the the language of the thing
1: compositional moves right
0: it fucking right. rules man it rules
1: so yeah, I mean, that was, you know, and then when we moved, when I moved to New York and I started with those cats with Dub Trio, uh, an actual proof, I remembered having these cassettes and we would just roll around and I would, I would play them in the car and we just, as a unit, became infatuated with Dub. And now like we really started playing it at the get-go, we were sort of just doing sort of rhythms that weren't even like maybe hip hop rhythms or electronic rhythms but the dub slowly seeped in. I remember one day we were at Union Square and Dave, the guitar player, and I were playing busking and he hooked up an AB switch and put a mic on the snare drum. (laughs) And that was the beginning of the dub That was the moment, yeah. Although I was already doing effects with birth. Like I had some effects with drums and microphones, but I'd never done that with those cats. And Dave put the pedal on uh, and that was like, okay, You know, we could do this as this group, and then Stu kind of came in, and then we just started improvising, and that kind of became what Dub Trio was. Yeah, is, and
0: so once you guys found that that point of focus, Mm -hmm. did you all agree that you would all have some auxiliary effect unit?
1: It was more like let's just see like what we have. With Dub Trio, we never really talked too much about what we're going to do, what we want to do, right? What we have and what we can implement. It was just like. I got this pedal, I got this thing, let's just pull this up and see what we can do with it. It was really based on improv and just kind of like playing on grooves together, like just letting grooves run and not so much taking solos, but just, you know, it was kind of dance oriented, like dance floor music, like people could dance to it. Um, We weren't that into like integrating the noise and the more aggressive sonic elements at that point, but But it was like, let's just pull out this pedal and bring it to the gig tonight. Or I was like, let's Mm -hmm. try this thing, you know? And then it kind of like just kept growing and growing and morphing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um,
0: so what was the the first dub trio record was?
1: It was called Exploring the Dangers of, and that was on on Roar. On Roar, yeah. Yeah. And that one was pretty rootsy, like reggae style dub. Um, there was some electronic elements, some ambient elements, but that one was really kind of like an homage to the early, you know, late seventies, uh, early seventies, reggae style dub versions. Um, was, there was some creative, you know, our sound was kind of coming in there, creative elements that we did in the studio that weren't as Jamaican reggae style dub, but that was the first album that was 2004 yeah yeah
0: yeah. and then did you guys do like the intense touring cycle
1: on that record we didn't really I I think we may have done a handful of shows around the east coast maybe the midwest Mm -hmm. but there was no there wasn't too much uh, much touring on that album I think the first time we went out we went out and we played with Soul Live this is when Soul Live before they had actually broke right and you know Soul Live yeah we were st- it was inside enough and that you know you could still like kind of groove to it and dance to it and there wasn't there wasn't really any heavy elements uh-huh. so the soul live crowd kind of got it I think and the next big that was a sh- a shorty run the next tour that we did that was a big tour on that album was um we went out with meat Beat manifesto oh wow yeah and this is probably like 2005 and uh Jack dangers and he you know they had the whole like four guys on stage with like 15 keyboards and electronic drums and I remember like trying to fit in these clubs like in front of their gear every night that was super rock and roll but yeah and then you know they kind of like their audience could kind of get it because you know Jack and Meep was sort of there was some roots and dub there and it was electronic and we were kind of influ- influenced by electronic music at that point and from there, it just started growing. Like we went out with Gogo Bordello. Oh, but that was a trip. That was really fun. Yeah, I mean, this is before they had really broke through, but they were packing out like you know, 500 seaters and playing for their fans who were super, you know, amped and loved, yeah. I mean, those right? guys yeah, put on a yeah, show. Yeah, a great show. And yeah. so we befriended them, and you know, it was just sort of that whole like Lower East Side scene that we were kind of in, like in you know, in, like the early 2000s.
0: Did you guys have a practice base on Rivington? we had
1: multiple practice spaces we didn't have one in Rivington. we were we were early williamsburg like well right. 2000 we were we were kind of rehearsing over here sweat shop and mm-hmm. there's a couple like other ones that were see some seedy spots i can't remember where they were but yeah shitty <laughs> yeah <laughs> running spots even we would come into the city and go to like euphoria Paying way more money than we ever made to rehearse—that's a good feeling. Yeah,
0: it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. And then, was this around the time you guys started hitting up the G Studio G?
1: Yeah, we hit up G with G, um, two thousand three, uh, through some recommendations, and then I didn't even know that you know Tony was there. I we had a bunch of mutual friends, but um, through Joel who did the record, who did that first album. We've done all of our albums with Joel basically up until the last one. And, um, yeah, so that was 2003, 2004. The old G that was at the corner of uh, Union and Metropolitan, uh-huh. which is still there. Lawson uh, has a studio there, it, but it's not called Studio G anymore. You know, Studio G is in Greenpoint, but um, the new one. But, uh, yeah, that was around that same time, 2003, 2004, and I just remember having the best time making that album. We did it to tape, two inch, you know, and, you know, I just remembered just having, you know, it was rock and roll. We did it in like five days, you know, <laughs> but we were well rehearsed for that first album. We had yeah, the, yeah. all the music dialed in. The concept was there, but we had never approached the music, uh, in the, in the, we, we, we really went in we were like, we got our approaches in a, like a traditional style, like Let's not do what we do live and do any of the effects live. Let's do everything in post like the OG shit. So the real, yeah, we went in and did the cuts on the two inch and playing the mixing board and doing passes. There was some automation, but you know, tweaking the knobs on the you know the boxes like live, like because you know Joel and Tony have so much
0: outboard gear. It's a it's a blessing. But now. I mean that process like. Were you guys? would it be like Joe take a turn at the board, or were you guys yep. all? Yeah, did that's. It was the best. I need people to realize like how crucial this this sound environment is. It
1: was the best, and you know, so with someone like Joel who has so much knowledge and has so much gear and so much creativity and willingness to try that, like he was, you know, just as excited as we were to be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, and he was doing that stuff, and already he was doing some dub stuff and some of the early drum and bass and. Electronic stuff and Joel's coming from like you know, he came up like playing like you know, kind of heavy music in the 90s, like you know, that whole stoner kind of heavy rock, hard stuff, like that 90s era neurosis kind uh-huh. of thing. But we weren't doing the heavy stuff yet, but he could tell like the there was some there was a there was a there was an, an a hint to that, like yeah, sort of like we've always had this sort of aggressive way we approach mixing, but. There was no distortion really on the first record at all. Right. You know, if it was, it was just like some gain on the bass. Sure. You know, to make it furry, but there was no conscious, like, we're going to go heavy on this one. Uh, that didn't come into the next record. And
0: what was the next one? That was.
1: The next one was on uh, Roar as well. That was called New Heavy. Right. And uh, New Heavy, uh, again, done to Studio G two years later. I think, you know, the reason why we started doing heavy stuff, I think we. We took a, a reggae rhythm in the studio. I can remember being at Funkadelic a rehearsal room in the 20s. I can't remember what the CrossFit was. I remember that place. Yeah, we had ta- we took some riff and we were like, let's just play it with distortion and sort of a heavier aesthetic for fun as kind of a joke maybe. Mm-hmm. Just We were just fucking off rehearsing and um, it felt great. Yeah. And then we started writing riffs, um, heavier riffs, because we were playing in other bands some more rock stuff at the time outside of Dub Trio. And so it kind of came in to where that kind of seeped in to the writing process of the new album. And New Heavy has a a bunch of heavier, there's some metal starts to creep in, some punk Mm -hmm. aesthetic. But none of us were really coming out of that as... As uh, you know, in the early days, but we were playing some of that stuff. It feels as a, good. As a, it felt great,
0: like listening to aggressive music. Yeah, I mean, playing aggressive music feels really good. You
1: know, there was some time, you know, when we were. I did play some heavy punk bands as a kid, but there was a good ten years where or, or so where I didn't play any of that stuff. It was all mm-hmm. like jazz or like um, improv or whatever. It was not not too much heavy stuff. And same with Davins and Stu, like drum and bass, hip hop. So we, we took a big break from playing that, and it kind of came in, uh, it kind of came in right around that time, two thousand five six. Yeah, to to the dub trio. Came yeah, in and it's it's just kind of kept going with that ever since.
0: And that was around the time you guys started playing with Patton. Yep. Uh, the,
1: the that actually that album has the first song called "Not Alone." Right. That Patton basically took uh, and did a remix for his the Peeping Tom album and Peeping Tom, that album came out right around the same time and, um, it's "Word Out Alone and Not Alone and it's, just, the only difference is just, you know, it's just a, a mixed version. I think Dan the Automator did the "Word Out Alone and we did Not Alone. Uh-huh. And, um, there's actually very subtle difference between the mixes. Yeah,
0: I didn't hear a lot of difference.
1: I like our mix better, just saying. <laughs> but, um, no disrespect to, I mean, it's just a different version, but, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, and then Peeping Tom, the first gig was Conan O'Brien, and I think... I remember that. Yeah, I think, you know, we, were, we had just finished a tour within a day or two, and our manager was like, you know, Patton's coming to town, you guys, are you guys available, do you want to do this Conan O'Brien gig with him? You know, it was like, you know, eight-piece band, and we were like, of course, so, um... How did you get hooked up with Patton originally? I think it was through Saft. I think I had asked Saft for, a, for a Mike's contact because uh-huh. we wanted to do a track with vocals and we were like, I don't even know how Mike's name came up, but I just emailed him. Yeah. And he knew of Dub Trio through however, and he's like, sure. And so, uh, Jamie, you know, contacted him, gave me his number, email or whatever, and um, we reached out and it was super easy and, and uh, it made sense and he was just, you know, and so, you know, like I said, that first gig was Conan and, Oddly enough, had you played did, on TV before? Um, never on national TV, okay. That big, uh, never like a you know, some sort of like late night show. That was the first one, and uh, Dave couldn't do it because I think at the time he may have been illegal here, and so Joel... because he's Canadian, because he's Canadian. all right, just to be clear, yeah. <laughs> just to yeah. be clear, no, no, right, right, right. citizenship, yep, yep, now it's all good, but yeah. um. Joel actually did the gig. That's right. Yeah, Joel did the play guitar on that that um, first show. And then, you know, Mike was happy with how that went. And he asked us to basically be the backing band. And we toured with PB town for about two years. You know, sort of did international touring around that record, like around that time, 2000. Was that the first time you
0: guys operated as someone's like backup band?
1: Um... On a touring level, yes, we have done it. We did a bunch of like small little runs around tri-state and uh-huh. a bunch of like showcase shows and recordings. But as on an international or a larger national touring scale, that was the first time we had done something like that as a yeah. trio. Yeah. yeah, 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 with Patton.
0: And <clears throat> was that less stressful than the self-book tour of where you guys oh, were Oh,
1: fully? I mean, you know. <laughs> Obviously with Pat, you know, there was already all that stuff behind it and, you know, tour manager, minor engineer, front of house, you know, merch, uh, traveling multiple buses. Mm -hmm. Very nice to go. I mean, we cut our teeth and paid our dues. Yeah. Grinding from 18 years old up until whatever we were at that point, 25 or something, six. But, uh. Yeah, that was nice. That was a nice change. (laughs) Grateful for that. Uh Uh-huh. Drum tech, maybe, at one point? Drum tech? Yep. Oh, boy. Drum tech. I don't know if it was every tour, but we had a drum tech. Europe. Um, We had a drum tech. Who, I think, was the drum tech for Terry Bozio? Are you serious? Which is pretty cool. And maybe Lombardo, too. Yeah, rock and roll. The dude. Lombardo, the dude.
0: The man. The dude. I remember seeing... I taught him how to slice smoked fish one time. Oh, yeah? Far <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. I remember the first time I ever saw Patton, I was a I was a Faith No More fan. Never listened to any of that other stuff, like Bungle, uh, Phantom. I, I, no one ever really turned me on to it. And um, I saw them... Because I won tickets, maybe. And I was just a Patton fan. But I wasn't like an over-Patton fan. I just knew him from Faith No More. And I saw... Phantomas played at peabody's down under in cleveland with you know trevor and mm-hmm. buzzo and lombardo kid 606 open and i the I kid was, i had you know i was into electronic music but he was, that was right before he broke or that shit was like no one knew he was and it was just like a fuck you for the first 45 Kid minutes.
0: 606 man i just talked about this with uh someone recently that uh-huh. first the one on Ipecac yep that's the first time I ever heard beat oriented music that was complete fucking aural disrespect it was amazing
1: that changed my life that whole night I was like yeah. whoa okay there's this whole scene and uh that was the first time I did heard Patton play live but I was a huge you know Faith No Mo- Faith more fan when I was uh I don't know in middle school or yeah whatever. but uh but yeah, so it was nice to work with Penn. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like two years, Um, that whole run. Yeah. We did Lollapalooza, Coachella. Jesus. A yeah. A couple of Europe we tours. We were out with Narrows Barkley. Right. Some, uh, some headlines. We did a run with Dub Trio opening and then playing the headline. That was a lot of work. It's a lot of work. We did that once with Modest Yahoo too, like opening and then playing the headline set. Yeah. And Modest was playing like three-hour shows then. Jesus. So we were... I was losing a lot
0: of weight on that tour.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's good, man. Well, when did I mean? I know that
0: yoga is very important to you.
1: Yeah, I love seeing the the Buddha's here. The medicine Buddha. Oh, he's everywhere in this house. He's everywhere. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yoga going okay.
0: When did you when did that first start becoming a thing?
1: (sighs) I mean, I think I took a I took uh, yoga, uh, or uh, I gotta say maybe two thousand no. I'll take this back. 97, I took a yoga class in college. I don't even know why I took it. Cause I, maybe because I was into fitness or I was lifting weights at the time. I'd, I'd read a little bit of like philosophy and Eastern religion stuff in high school uh-huh. and dabbled with meditation because I was raised... Christian, Catholic. I was never that hardcore. I didn't really go to church that often, but I remember one of the priests turned me on to Buddhism. Yeah? Which is a trip. It's pretty hip. Yeah. His whole thing was like, I remember him saying like, what did he say? Buddha's great. Or like but he doesn't save, like, Jesus or something. That was just like... <laughs> so, so, you know, anyway... <laughs> he was almost there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he turned me on to Buddhism, and I remember experimenting with meditation as a kid, like, lighting candles in my basement. I think I was tripping my parents out, you mm-hmm. know, in silence and the and just, you know, trying to, like, discover what was then kind of probably, like, Vipassana meditation, you know, and uh, I didn't get that serious about it, but taking, you know, uh, yoga class in, like, 97 for a semester in college, and then... um didn't really do anything with it until New York. This would have been probably 2012 or so. I had, um, I got into running and biking on tour. And so I remember being at home in between tours and buying some Groupons for yoga classes around Williamsburg. Groupon, so I was living yeah. here at the time. And um, buying like a Bikram class. I think my first one was Bikram. And I had no idea. Hot yoga? Yeah, I had no Isn't idea. Isn't he like a. Oh, yeah, he's the worst. He's like a huge fucking yeah. perp. Yeah. But, you know, that anyway. wasn't out then. Right. And it wasn't with him, but... Right, but hot It yoga. was at Bikram's studio in Williamsburg at the time, and I had no idea what it was. I just read hot yoga. It was like five classes for $25 or something. So I went in, and it almost killed me. That was insane. Like, it was 105-plus degrees in there, and I was not used to doing yoga. I mean, I've always been pretty limber, but I had no idea what I was doing. And they were just, you know... Brooklyn style, packed room. They do, they weren't focusing on me in the back room, just failing, flailing. And I remember almost passing out. But I remember coming out of that, and there was like a little something. I was like, oh, I made it, and I feel kind of incredible.
0: In what way? Where does that feel? Just
1: like? maybe like... Um, it was probably due to, like, you know, you know my blood vessels being completely open and kind of, like, sweating out a ton and then coming out into the fresh air and taking in all that oxygen and just kind of having this, like, little bit of a lift in my body physically and sort of mentally. But I wasn't that dialed in yet. But and then buying a bunch of other, you know, sort of classes at different studios. And then I became aware that there was something. It, I came to it physically just for the exercise and then it, sl- it slowly but not that slowly morphed into something different um, for me uh, uh, as, a, as a practice, as a discipline and I started taking classes on the road and it became a big part of my life right around I mean it started in 2012 but I'd say 2013-14 I was doing it almost every day Yeah. or some sort of practice whether it was meditation or Pranayama, some breathing. I was trying to do classes on the road. And then when I moved back to Cleveland, I took a year off of uh, of touring and um, I had got my certification as a teacher. Really? And, yeah, and then I taught for a year, which was, that was incredible. So, yeah, it's, it's become a pretty big part of my life since 2012.
0: Um, yeah, you see, I see these pictures of you on Instagram, like really intense photos.
1: Yeah, I mean... You know, I don't post those to boast. I, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I but they're—I mean—they're
0: I mean, they're crazy looking.
1: Yeah, you know, some of them are, aren't that crazy. Like I did one—I posted one the other day. It was just me in like a you know restorative pose. Right. Um, I just, uh, yeah, it's it's a huge part of my life. I I love the practice, and I'm always learning and reading and studying. And there's a lot to learn, as with music, you know.
0: Yeah, so, but so. I mean, then I mean, concurrently, yeah, you've be- veganism.
1: Well, the veganism, yeah. I was ni- I was vegetarian for almost... 50- f- fuck. I was vegetarian for almost 19 years.
0: I ate sushi with you one time.
1: I had done some fish. Yeah. But that kind of like <clears throat> dwindled out the last two, three years of uh, mm-hmm. being a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> excuse me. So when I moved to Cleveland, I think I was like... I may have been doing like bulletproof coffee or something. So I was I was putting butter in my coffee and... I'd done a little bit of cheese when I would go to Europe, and mm-hmm. drinking. I was way into wine, so I was doing wine and cheese, and then it just slowly faded out. And then when I did that teacher training, I kind of like looked at sort of the the ethics of like everything I was doing from a conscious standpoint, of the way I was living my life. And I, you know, I was really into nutrition. I'd studied. I've taken some nutrition classes and courses, and I was like, all right, let's try this vegan thing. I got my blood measured, was very aware how how I was physically um in my body, and I tried the vegan thing the entire time I did the teacher training for about three and a half months, and then I got my blood levels measured afterwards, and I was very conscious of how I was feeling uh physically once again because I was you're very dialed in that whole teacher training mm-hmm. um journey, and there was nothing i my my levels were better. My energy levels were better. I wasn't lacking anything. My weight gain was—I actually gained weight, muscle, because um, I was doing a little bit more working out at the time. And I was just like, "I don't, I don't need. I'm not lacking in anything, uh, physically or metabolically." Um, so I just cut out
0: all animal products.
1: Yeah, um, and, and I did- love.
0: You've done that with your family? They've also
1: Well, my I'm yeah, I mean I'm the cook at home, so I uh, I'm very passionate about food and cooking, so yeah. I I um everything I cook is vegan. Um and so we eat that way. My wife made the choice to go 2 years ago vegan uh on New Year's. So she's been vegan for about 2 and uh half years almost. And then my daughter just by you know proxy, she just eats what i cu- we cook, and um she is vegetarian, I mean she'll right. have like
0: she'll go to a pizza party yeah or something.
1: parties there might be cake or pizza, you know, but at the house, there's nothing animal based yeah, And my wife's gluten free but I'm not, and my my daughter isn't so we'll eat bread and pasta, but it's so it's pretty mere pretty much a vegan household all vegan and mostly gluten free so but yeah, I just you know, for me it started out as a health thing and then it led into an ethics thing and um Yeah. I don't know, yeah. I try to eat as healthy as possible. You know, it's not all it's not like vegan junk food. I mean But it's delicious. I mean because 'cause you've yeah. always been a food guy. Yeah, I've always been a food guy. Ever since the first trip to Europe, like with Kung and Stomu. I remember Stomu taking me out to a, a birthday dinner in Nice or Nant. I can't remember, but um I had that aha moment where I was we were eating some fish and he bought this really nice bottle of wine and i had that aha moment of the pairing with the fish and the yeah. wine and and then from there i just it was all about the food you know with Patton too he was a, he's well a he's a huge food guy yeah so i remember going out to eat with him i couldn't really hang on a financial level but right i was one of the guys in the band who would try to hang and he knew i was in the food so we bonded on that and uh yeah food's been a big part of my life is wine still a part of your life it isn't as much but there, there was five years where i was really deep Studying, classes, reading. I spent thousands of dollars on wine. Yeah, you know, I literally almost. I want. I was, you know, contemplating about the whole psalm thing. Man, you, take, you don't want to fucking. No, I know. Especially as a vegan, it's very is, niche. As like, as
0: like a profession goes, there are yeah. like the 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 amount of unlikable people in. I mean, I have some friends who are psalms who are like my ride or die, like super deep homies. Yeah, I dig it. But in general. There is a lot of douchery to be found in that world. Well, I know. I've
1: I've seen it. I mean, yeah. I I that was one of thing that, that that deterred me from going down that that path. But um, yeah, I think just I music is just more important to me. And I still love grape juice. I just don't uh, drink it that much because I don't really drink that much alcohol. Um, and when I do drink wine, it it is ninety percent of the time with food. Uh huh. And so. These days, my wife isn't drinking booze or alcohol, so if I open up a bottle, it means you're drinking it. That means I'm drinking it. So, and I have a lot of great bottles in my cellar still. You have a cellar, a little. cellar. Okay, all right, yeah, but yeah, they're, yeah. They're mostly big reds, and the food that I cook and eat
0: that doesn't call for a big red.
1: Very little big red, so I'm just kind of sitting on them. So when I do open them, some '05 Bordeaux or some like you know West Coast cabs or this that you know some. Australian Shirazes and some yada yada yada. So I, I'm just sitting on them. I'm aware of where they are and their cellarability. ability. Uh-huh. So I'll pop them before they, you yeah. know. But I do appreciate wine. I just don't explore it as much anymore. Um. So yeah. I mean, yeah. I I'm like. I'm getting, Balance. Yeah, it's all Balance. about that. My whole I mean, life is about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Did all right. So <clears throat> the new Dub Trio record. Is there a shape of Dub to come? That single with Buzzo is insane.
1: It's fun. It's really fun. And it's fun to play live. Without him, I'd prefer if he was there. Who sings
0: it? Or you just do it without vocals? I'm
1: triggering it <laughs> on the pads. <laughs> I literally like I'm triggering like and there's no click. It's a challenge. Like I'm triggering like uh intro and then triggering like verse one and then so we'll play like a sixteen bar chunk. And there's inherent space in his phrasing. Yeah. So we kind of like have to have a good time to like play. <laughs> there, was, there was actually one part where in the first verse where I went in and like into like, you know, my daw and like kind of like kind of tried to st- like time align a little bit of the part because it was so loose in a great way, but to play it live, it was almost impossible. Yeah. But I'm triggering it live. But yeah, that song is fun.
0: But I Buzz as a singer is. He's probably one of my favorite singers. He's
1: the best, and he killed that track. And, yeah, um, we're, we're, I'm grateful to have him on that track. We are. It's like uh, he killed it, and he was the nicest cat to like easiest to work with. And we're you know he was in the video. Uh huh. Stu went and played golf with him a couple weeks months ago. <laughs> That's that, a like, funny yeah, image. That's pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, he's great. I mean i i I'd, I'd only seen him play at that Fandamash show once, and then. In, and then I went and saw play at play uh, in, in San Fran. My wife and I, they were doing actually a wine tour in... Uh, in Napa. One year. Yeah, and we went, Pat got us in the... It was right around uh, New Year's. I can't remember what year it was, but uh, I went and saw... Dale was playing drums on that run, yeah. that gig. But um, I met him in person that time. That's the only time I'd ever met him uh, in person. But uh, yeah, we had some mutual friends, Trevor uh-huh. and my friend Troy Ziegler and... It was easy to get in touch with him, and he was totally down. And he,
0: it was great. Did um, now this is the first record you guys have made since none of you live in the same city.
1: This is correct. Yep, because yep. so now
0: you live in Cleveland. Yep, uh, Stu lives in Stu
1: recently moved to L.A. When we did the record, he was here in Brooklyn. Still, okay. Dave's in Charlotte, North yeah. Carolina. Yeah, but you
0: made the record here in Brooklyn.
1: We made the record here in Brooklyn. At I think Studio all the records, have been... yeah. There was only one that was tracked. And a different studio, but mixed in Brooklyn. We went we went up to New Hampshire and did um, another sound is dying, which is on Ipecac. Right, that record was tracked at a uh, metronome in um, New Hampshire. I didn't realize that at a house in the middle of nowhere, and uh, that was fun just to get out. We made a conscious decision to like get out, and get away from the distractions that that is and it was uh, Brooklyn, just being home. And mm-hmm. That was a great decision, you know. But uh, yeah, they're all they're all done. They were all done here. Brooklyn that that was the new one was done there was a bunch of pre-production that went into it over a couple of years really short chunks but uh, at Stu's house this is the first record we ever had demos for and then when it came time to do it do the recording we did um, three days in a tiny little spot probably no bigger than this room of just us crammed in and just learning the parts physically that Mm -hmm. we had laid out in the demos. And then we did 10 days uh, at Studio G in Brooklyn mixing and tracking. Yeah. So it was done in Brooklyn, the the new one. Yeah, 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 yeah. As with all of them, yeah.
0: Right. Yep. And I've I, so I heard the I haven't heard the whole record yet. I just yep. heard the track with Buzz.
1: I should have brought a fucking vinyl for you. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it, man. It's terrible. It's it's, a, I mean, it's, it's out now, right? You have to so
0: I'll fucking listen to it today. And you know, yeah, Apple yeah, Music. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah I brought you a vinyl though. You, you have a record player, right? Yeah, in the other room. I, <laughs> shit, man, I don't. Yeah. I don't fuck. I I, I love vinyl. I like holding okay. it. I like the way it looks. I almost never listen to it.
1: Okay, cool. Well, that's yeah. great.
0: I'll sell it, make money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still like it's going down that path of distorted guitars and
1: yes. I mean, the it's gotten a little slower. The last record was probably not the last. I mean, the one, the penultimate, the one before the last was the most metal and kind of the fastest in a in a and a dense way of heavy so this Another oh, Sound is dying, you mean well, this one's called that one was called four. I oh, e, Right. right. numeral four. Um so that one uh was the most heavy and metal from a dense standpoint. This one has gotten a little more slower and more of like a sludge doom aesthetic from tempo and uh kind of like songwriter standpoint uh standpoint. So it's still heavy, but it's slower. Mm-hmm. There's a little more space in here in, in the music. But also, we've explored some other stuff that we've kind of like been into, like um, some ambient electronic. There's one track with no percussion, no drums. Um, there's one that's kind of like real, like kind of like computer kind of driven, kind of like real syncopated, you know, sort of quantized although it's all played live, but um, just a bunch of fun studio trickery. We try to make the most of the time that we have in the studio, so we had some, we did the most we could in those five days of mixing, so it's a pretty diverse record. There's a there's a one track with uh, Michelle Nogueo cello singing. Oh, really? That's really kind of root style uh, reggae dub that she sings on, and then there's some of the sludge, some of the doom metal stuff, some of the atmospheric, electronic, ambient stuff. It's a pretty... It's our most diverse record, I think our best from like a songwriting standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think because we did the demos and wasn't as rushed. Mm-hmm. It's still Marathon once we got in the studio. And sure. And tracked and mixed it, but... uh,
0: But if you're in the studio with limited time, you, you need to just be hitting. Yep. Not, you know, That's assertive statements, not questions. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yep, so... Uh,
1: yeah, it's a fun record. It's, it's a cool one.
0: You guys are on a tour right now.
1: Yeah, we're doing a short run. We're doing like a small East Coast uh, East Coast run. We're, we're like in the middle here. We just played Vitus, St. Vitus, the other night in Brooklyn. We're going to Asbury Park tonight. And this this kind of wraps up in yeah. two days. And then we, we're not going out again until the end of August. We're going out actually with Incubus in really? September. They're still going, Incubus. Really? And those are going to be some big shows. I mean... I think we're playing a 90-minute set, opening slot.
0: Why is an opening band playing 90 minutes? No idea. It's going to be great, though. Are Incubus fans going to agree with
1: that? I hope. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I mean, I think their fans are going to get our music, so I'm optimistic.
0: A 90-minute set for an opening band is a little weird. So what does that mean, Incubus plays for three hours, or what does that mean?
1: I have no idea what that means. We'll see when it happens. I mean... I'm kind of stoked to be playing that long as an opening slot. I just yeah. hope that their fans are going to be patient enough. Yeah,
0: like maybe midway through the tour, the, the set becomes 45 minutes. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we're
1: instrumental still, you know, so there might be like some vocals here and there triggered, but... uh uh-huh. I mean, We've played a lot of opening slots for a sure. lot of quite diverse artists. Yeah. And, you know, usually it's always good. Sometimes people are like, where's the vocals? Or, you know, this and the other, you know, but these days it doesn't it doesn't normally happen that way so i think that judging by their music and their fans it should be cool but 90 minutes is a long fucking time for an opening band band to
0: play so we'll see right and then just real quick so i saw i saw you in brooklyn a couple months ago with yellowstone apocalypse and it seems like in cleveland you're, you're nurturing some new improvisational relationships
1: yes um Yellowstone Apocalypse is a duo between uh, myself and Mike Sopko, great guitar player, improviser. This band Yellowstone that we play with is all composed, except for kind of like one track, sort of pretty loosely improv. But uh, it's kind of really slow, stoner, vein doom, uh, droney uh, duo. It's guitar and drums. uh Mike and I also have another band called Togishi which is a complete improv uh trio with a saxophone this guy Dan Winnegar who lives in Cleveland. We recently put out an album this year a few months ago that I um that I we recorded and mixed I mixed it and uh super stoked on it, a small label, put it out in cassette, uh-huh. an LA label. And uh we're actually gonna be doing the first some of our first touring in um in June. That that band's called Togishi. So Mike and I have been playing a lot, um, just trying to explore what Cleveland, you know, Cleveland is my favorite scene <laughs> musically. Right. I mean, I have a bunch of friends there and there's some opportunities, but, you know, it's not like New York or, I mean, I'm not trying to hustle too hard, but mm-hmm. I guess I could maybe be getting more GB gigs or like restaurant gigs, but, you
0: know. Do you need to be doing those things? Mm,
1: kind of, maybe. I don't know. Pay, <laughs> I saw bills and then mortgage yeah. and the car payments, but... You know, it's all about the balance. So I mean, I'm lucky enough to be able to do all I mean look, I mean, most of my life I've played most of my own music and yeah. made it work. And even if I was for hire, I'm still hired to do what I do. Yeah. And so I'm very lucky to have that. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm still hustling, but Cleveland's cool for to own a house. I have two and a half two and a half acres and it's like kind of like my drums are set up and i have a little studio in the basement and like super stoked on that yeah super lucky to have that never had that in new york 15 years never on my own drums terrible so and my wife you know is, has a job and we're raising our daughter around grandparents and it's rad you know yeah so i still tour um Going you're doing out, great. yeah, I'm going out again with Modestyahu for a week, and though I'm not really playing with him right now, we're going out next week with him, Stu and I. And uh, you know, like I said, Yellowstone's going to hit. Tokishi's she's going to go out in June, and then Jump Trio's going to pick it back up. In this is August, September. Yeah, you're so, great. Yeah, yeah, still, still going. Yeah, man. Well, I'm glad you Can come over today.
0: Still long yeah, overdue.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time, brother.
0: Joe Tom. Peace, brother. Joe Tom. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, that was Joe Tom, Joe Tom, as uh, some of us call him. It's the fucking best dude around. Fantastic drummer, sweet guy, and uh, listen to Dub Trio. Do that. Check him out if you're uh, if you're around. They're playing, and that's it. My throat's on fire. I'm gonna shut her down. We'll be back next week, and uh, until then, I hope you're cool. Bye.